Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Can I please have your attention? Oh, greetings, Remnantitos. It is I, Chris Steyerwald. I'm sorry to inform you uh, that El Capitan is not here. Jonah Goldberg is not here. But I improbably find myself here at the helm. And in the last couple of times that I have had the opportunity to guest host in the absence of Brother Goldberg, we've delved into weighty subjects and history. We've, we've plumbed the inky depths of the Roman Republic uh, and the origins of the great society. But let's be honest. Who am I really? I am a political dirtbag, and I love politics season, even when, I'm sorry to say, much of the world appears to be on fire. So I'm going to indulge myself, and I hope indulge you in what uh, Brother Goldberg would call rank punditry. And it does not get ranker, my friends, than my friend, my colleague, uh, and somebody who is better at this than almost anybody, David Drucker. Um, I assume that uh, you are already subscribed to the Dispatch Politics newsletter, and you are waiting for every morsel of David's uh, writing. If you're not, act now, because you could have no better guide through the 2024 cycle. David Drucker, welcome. Good to be here. Thanks so much, Chris. Has anybody ever, I've, I've, I was thinking about this this morning, has anybody ever called you Dave? I don't think any, you, I could never imagine calling you Dave. You don't seem like a Dave. I've never called myself Dave, but uh, interestingly enough, um, some of my closest friends from growing up, like going all the way back to elementary school, junior high, still occasionally call me Dave and sometimes family members, not my family that I've created, but you know, my parents, things like that would call me Dave, but I've never used it for myself, but you know what? If you if you subscribe to the Dispatch and if you want to read what I write, or you want to scream at me because you've read what I write. I mean, you can call me almost anything you want as long as you're reading my content. I think a man with a pocket silk collection of your magnitude cannot be a Dave. That's just not that's just not a Dave. Hence the middle initial in my byline. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. You know when I started writing for a lip when well when I started writing as a freelancer uh, when I was dabbling with this profession while I was busy sales and marketing to pay the rent, I didn't have the middle initial. And um, I very quickly realized that that was not erudite enough for somebody who fashions himself, sells a pocket square uh, aficionado. So I, I inserted my middle initial in there, and it's been that way ever since. But um, you know, there was a bit of an evolution. The M is for Melif Lewis. 
Uh, okay, so when uh, the, the political version of telling your kids that the dog went to live uh, on a nice farm in the country is when you say that you're, and it's a really deadly phrase, all in on Iowa. You're all in on Iowa. And while it is true that Iowa is where campaigns can take off, right? Barack Obama, Jimmy Carter, um, more on the Democratic side than the Republican side. Republicans, Iowa has produced some Republican uh, flashes and pans, uh, Ted Cruz, Mike Huckabee, da-da-da-da-da. But Iowa is also where campaigns go to die. I think of Chris Dodd, I think, uh, who moved to Iowa. I think of Joe Biden uh, and many others over the years uh, who went all in on Iowa and then went off a cliff. We have heard that two candidates for the Republican nomination are all in on Iowa, Ron DeSantis and Tim Scott. Is this the harbinger of uh, the, the of doom? Uh, is this a way out? What is this? Well, you're you're correct in your historical analysis there, um, and in part, uh, Chris, it's because whenever a campaign announces that we're scaling back our plan of attack and we're only going here. What, are, what you're really telling voters is, oh, it's not, it's not going well because you cannot afford to be in, in many places at once. You know, it's like an army, um, you know, you're, you're involved in a, you know, in a ground war and you're fighting a war on multiple fronts. And the general comes in and he's like, listen, I, I hate to tell you, but we got to let the Western front go. But here's how we're going to do it. We're going to let ourselves get surrounded on all sides, but we'll, we'll We'll kill them on the Eastern Front, and then we'll regroup and take back all the ground we've lost. Now, theoretically, in a game of momentum, because that's what politics is, it's not an actual ground war, you can win somewhere and all of a sudden breathe new life into your campaign. But going all in on Iowa after being all in in multiple places has only ever signaled that you're running out of money, your support is dwindling. And you're making a last-ditch effort to stave off the inevitable. And so, particularly with Senator Tim Scott, South Carolinian, when he announced yesterday, we're all in on Iowa. I mean, here was a campaign with lots of money left over from his re-election account in South Carolina because he didn't need to spend any of it, and a super PAC that seemed like it was a bottomless pit of money. And, And here's somebody who shouldn't have to go all in on Iowa, yet he is. Uh, Ron DeSantis, you know, they never quite did the we're all in on Iowa speech. They started going all in on Iowa without saying so. And then just said, hey, listen, we're moving some staff over there. But he actually has increased lately his visits to New Hampshire and South Carolina. But they're essentially all in on Iowa. It's always a sign that nothing good will come of this. Right. And if you're retreating to Iowa, that's not the same as trying to build a grassroots thing in Iowa, right? Rick Santorum didn't have to go all in on Iowa because he was all in on Iowa. That was that his strategy was Iowa first. If you come to Iowans late, er, and say, "Yeah, I was hanging out with those losers down in South Carolina and New Hampshire. I never really liked them, but you." I always loved. You were always first in my heart. And now that I don't have the resources to run a national campaign, 
you, Iowa. And much like uh, the the guy who did not get uh, asked in the first four rounds to go to prom, uh, he's not going to feel great when you come back at the end and say, everybody else said no. But you, now now I'm ready to settle for you, Iowa. Yeah, I was just about to use that analogy there. It's so great. It's and like it, you like how I you like how I changed the genders. You like how cool I am about who's getting asked to prom now. I'm very forward thinking. I definitely recognize that DeSantis and Scott are in different positions. Um, Scott, I, I looked at this uh yesterday. There was a new poll out from Suffolk for USA Today. And basically Donald Trump is up 10. Ron DeSantis is down. This is nationally. Ron DeSantis is down 11. Nikki Haley's up seven. And Tim Scott went from six to three. And this is since, I believe, June. And when you test my thesis here, Trump got his mostly from DeSantis. Um, and Haley got hers mostly from Scott and others who have shed points. So basically, if we're talking, if the universe includes, uh, Doug Burgum, Mike Pence, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, Tim Scott, am I forgetting anybody? I mean, if you are, it doesn't matter. Well, I'm just saying people who are, who, who have been on a debate stage or, or had a number, Correct. So I don't know if you mentioned some point. former Vice President Mike Pence. Oh, Chris Christie. I hit Pence and Christie. And so these other five or so, I'm this is just and this is just guesswork on my part, but that Haley has consolidated from those folks and maybe chipped off a point or two from DeSantis. But it has been DeSantis, my my narrative is DeSantis attempted to blow Trump up at his base. He failed, and in so doing, bled the Trump-DeSantis voters back to Trump. You think that's fair? I think that's fair. Look, I think one thing we should say about DeSantis in Iowa is, um, because I always hate certainty, he has such a strong organization in Iowa, and has from the beginning. And his his, the attendance at his events is still so robust that if there was going to be a Santorum-like figure in this race, who all of a sudden breaks out with two weeks to go, four weeks to go, 10 days to go, I'd still look for the possibility that it could be him, given the electorate in an Iowa caucus and uh, given all the work that he's been putting in to build an infrastructure to bring these people to the polls. The, 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 the candidate I'm really curious about is Nikki Haley to see if she can build on some of the momentum that she's had since the first debate in late August. Um, what I find kind of hilarious about a lot of these candidates is when you talk to them, they will make this argument. And I've had this, this conversation with the Bergham campaign. I mean, everybody. So we're not picking on anybody here. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the speak for yourself, Drucker. Speak for yourself. I, w- I wouldn't be surprised if Tim Scott's campaign tells us that they're still in the hunt because you know they're still in the top five in this group of candidates, and they're not too far behind the the the, the individual in second or third place or whatever. But wait, 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 wait. What's what's the appeal for Tim Scott and for he has significant smart human beings backing him. 
right? Right. Uh, if we look, if we think about like Bill Haslam, former governor of Tennessee, uh, if we think about um, the the political professionals who signed on with Scott, these are not bitter enders, and I don't know why. I don't know anything about the relationship between Tim Scott and Nikki Haley, but I don't know what the motivation would be for Scott. I mean, you read the George Will column, which had the, by the way, greatest ever editor's note, greatest ever disclosure. The author's wife who works for Tim Scott disagrees with this column was, but I, I can't understand. So I, what would be the motivation for Tim Scott? To say, I'm hunkering down. I'm going to just stay here and I'm going to be a drag on Nikki Haley in Iowa and I'm going to be a drag on Nikki Haley in South Carolina, but I'm staying to fight. What's That doesn't sound like Tim Scott and it doesn't sound like the people around him. Well, I mean, it kind of does because when you decide to run for president, I mean, when you decide to subject yourself to one of the worst experiences on planet Earth at this point in time in our history, which is running for president of the United States. It's a very difficult thing to do. It's a, a very compromising thing to do. It can be a very physically and mentally exhausting thing to do. You, you put yourself through it for several months and you don't want to let go before you see the votes that say you shouldn't have done it in the first place. Number one. Number two, Chris, I, there is not an urgency, I don't think, among, among any of these candidates, except maybe Chris Christie, and I, I based that on an interview I had with him recently for the dispatch, to consolidate so as to give Trump a run for his money. Now, so the argument you're making is, why get in the way of Nikki Haley, or why get in the way of anybody? Why should DeSantis get in the way of Haley, or Haley in the way of DeSantis? None of them seem to be all that concerned with the idea that all of them might be preventing any of them from turning into a consensus alternative to Trump that might beat him. And so if you're not motivated to get out of the race, to give somebody a chance to oust Trump, then why shouldn't you stay in the race until the voters drum you out? Why not? And then you can say, I ran for president, I got votes. You think Tim Scott's in this race at, uh, at Christmas? You think he's still in the race at Christmas? If he still has money. I, well, the, I guess well, the, you tell the way me, I put it this way, you tell me why is Tim Scott going to get out of the race? Because he doesn't want to be the spoiler. He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to do it. And also, do you know what's what not if he doesn't fun? Look at it that way. What if he doesn't look at it that way? What if he wants votes? He he may he may believe, and I do not know. I have not talked to the senator about this. He may believe that his moment is coming. Right and that he is shepherding his resources and will be making a push in Iowa. Totally possible. But here's what I also know. I know that the, there is a social psychology of voters, there is a social psychology of donors, and there is a social psychology of candidates. And the Republican Party very much, you know, we talk about how, for example, and I want to talk to you more about this later, we talk about how even the election for Speaker of the House is arranged around the idea of whether or not you accepted the results of the 2020 election. But in a lot of ways, the Republican Party still lives in the shadow of the 2016 election. And the Democrats got the lesson of the 2016 election, right? 
which is shut up, get out of the way and consolidate, right? Um, if, if for the Democrats, that was for people, including even Elizabeth Warren, to fall in line behind Joe Biden. For Republicans, and I mean, you talk to these same people, the same, the same consultants, the same strategists, the same donors who say, we don't want 2016 again. We don't want it. It's, we do not want to do it. And it looks to me obvious that Haley and Scott were always paired off head to head, same state and going for the same traditional conservative slice of the Republican Party. They have the, the, they're, uh, they are both non-white. They're both, it just, and it, it just lines up too closely that those two people cannot possibly inhabit the same space. And that that was always going to have to be resolved. That conflict was going to be resolved. There was one scenario in which they're dueling and they go back to South Carolina and South Carolina decides and the winner or the one who comes out ahead in their home state goes on to Super Tuesday and the other one drops out. I can't imagine. maybe, Maybe I'll put it this way. I don't see that Tim Scott particularly enjoys doing this. I don't see in him a candidate who is drawing strength from doing it. I see somebody who, I, I think he likes a crowd. I think he likes retail politics just fine. But you watch him on that debate stage, contrast him to Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley likes the debate stage. Maybe too much, right? Maybe she is, maybe she is too, yeah, maybe she's too combative. But, Tim Scott does not seem to like that debate stage and he does not seem to like that setting. So if that's true, I get stubbornness and I get Joe Biden, Iowa, 08. I, I, I understand people do it. I just feel like with the social psychology at work here on the voter candidate and donor slash consultant level, there's going to be a lot of pressure to get out because the next obvious death match is DeSantis. For Haley, right? That's the next most obvious thing is that she has the, 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 before you can get to the final boss, then she would have to defeat the next uh, Koopa Trooper. Look, everything you're saying makes sense rationally. But I, I just, I think what, you know, what we've seen over the past several years and what we're experiencing is the fact that. There is no central command and control of the Republican Party. And so while many, many wealthy donors, for instance, have stayed out of this primary because they don't want to participate in 2016 redux, there are still some that are participating. So you have donors that many of whom are out, and maybe they would get in for somebody who emerges as a uh, consensus alternative to Trump with a chance to beat him. but. There's very little pressure on the candidates to get out from anyone with any particular influence over them. And so that leaves it up to the candidates themselves to decide, one, I'm going to get spanked and it's not necessary. Two, the same way we saw Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar quickly get out of the Democratic primary in 2020 once. Joe Biden won South Carolina and was on his way to a big victory on Super Tuesday. 
And the overriding desire was we need somebody to beat Trump. We always knew Biden was probably the best candidate for that. It looks like he's on his way to victory in this primary. Let's not belabor the issue. Let's get out because we want to beat Trump. I'm not seeing any of that sort of urgency. And so absent an overriding motivator, absent people that can pressure these candidates, then the only reason they're going to get out is if they conclude that either A, they don't want to lose badly, or B, they run out of money and literally cannot continue. And maybe the the psychology of this primary that I am seeing will shift in the coming weeks. Maybe some candidate or another won't make the debate stage in Miami, um, or will just simply run out of money at some point afterward. Um, But I'm waiting to see a change in how these candidates look at it, because as you say, even though I'm sure Tim Scott's you know, had a meeting with his advisors and they all said, sir, I think this is our best course of action. You know, he's free to say, this is not the race I wanted to run. This is not the candidate that I wanted to be. And therefore, I'm just going to get out of this race now. And he is not doing that. And still be a senator from South Carolina and still be a vice presidential shortlist and still be, and and by the way, earn the appreciation of those same donors and those same consultants and political professionals in the future. So we will see. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit TNUSA.com slash remnant. That's TNUSA.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. It's just like you load the app and it says, what pictures do you want in your frame? And you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all 
ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Do you accept the premise? DeSantis, who is a grim campaigner, right? It is not, it is not a, a joyful campaign, uh, is at least determined, right? There is a, there is a determination in Ron DeSantis that you don't see in Tim Scott, uh, about we're, we're doing this, right? We're doing it and we're, we're not, we're not flinching. Correct. Ron DeSantis is a grinder. He's for better or worse. He is a fighter. Like he, he may not look like he's having a good time, but I think he relishes or at least enjoys mixing it up. And look, and I, I wrote about this uh, for the dispatch in the past few days. He probably thinks, you know, he probably sees mixed signals because despite all of the polling that we're seeing, and I have no reason to believe that any of it's wrong, he continues to add to his coalition through the endorsement of uh, conservative activists prominent state legislators. Now, it's not that voters, you know, say, oh, look, he got this endorsement, I'll be for him. But these people are very helpful on the ground in rounding up grassroots support and in pushing a candidacy um, and in providing you an infrastructure to turn voters out. So if I'm DeSantis and let's say I'm having this conversation, things aren't going well. Yes, but sir, look, we continue to get support. Also, the support we've had since June when you were actually somebody hasn't dropped off. People really believe in you, sir. So if we just keep grinding it out, you know how Iowa is, sir, it'll break late and you will be there. Just keep working. The Iowa caucus electorate is a very philosophically and movement oriented conservative electorate. It's tailor made for you, sir. You don't have to drop out. And I can see DeSantis going, OK, now I just made up a conversation in our head here for us. But this this plays into why I would be very surprised to see Ron DeSantis drop out absent a money issue. And the uh, sunk cost fallacy of politics is real, right? They've already spent a hundred million dollars. It costs them a hundred million dollars to lose eleven points. Basically, that's 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 what it costs. Uh, so you know, at ten million dollars a point negative, it's it gets it gets to it gets to feel pretty bad. And there is the tension between DeSantis and his super PAC. That is, I will say, I can't think of an analog. I can't think of a time that I have ever seen open, naked, public hostility between a super PAC and a campaign exactly in this way. Have you ever seen anything like that? You know, we've seen some super PACs in previous previous elections take on the, the traditional role of the campaign with organization and ground game and and hosting events, but never at this scale, right? Um, in 2016, the short-lived, uh, long-forgotten campaign for president by uh, Louisiana Governor Bobby Jindal, I think then he was still the governor. Oh, oh, his, his super PAC was running <laughs> the entire campaign operation, if you will. Um, but never with a prominent candidate with so much money and at such a level. And by the way, like, you know, just because we're nerds about this, Chris, 
there's a good argument to make that given that super PACs can raise money in infinite amounts, there's, a, there's an argument to turn this operation over to the super PAC and let the campaign focus on advertising because the campaign gets better rates, gets top placement, uh, and then the campaign can control the message directly for the ads. Uh, but I- it's almost as if, David, it's, it's almost as if that the McCain-Feingold campaign finance reforms were a disaster. It's just, it just seems maybe that's true. I don't know. You think? (laughs) The the, the McCain-Feingold effectively neutered political parties, turned them into ballot access organizations, and everybody wonders why the chairman of this party or that party can't sideline the elements within those parties that we all think are, you know, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Right. We, we, you can't, it's it's harder to get money to individual candidates and it's harder to get money v- much harder to get money to parties but it is thanks to the the i'm sure correct citizens united decision it's it, it's very easy to dump cash into uh and when you see uh you see what people spend money on outside of politics and here here's here's a sentence you won't hear every day Sam Bankman-Fried is quite right, uh, which is when he found out how relatively little money was being spent on politics compared to how big the powers were and how big the spending of the federal government was, he, w- he marveled, how come Warren Buffett isn't throwing a couple billion a year into this thing? Every, you know, I, I don't understand. Why, why aren't they dumping more money in here? And uh, I, I agree when we talk about how much money is in politics, I would say probably not as much as there should be, right? Probably not as much. Correct. Well, yeah, that, that's, that's definitely correct. I, I would say the issue with money in politics is, is where it goes and how it is spent. You know, I've, I've covered a lot of uh, super PACs over the years that have billionaire benefactors. And the billionaire spends lots and lots of money on this super PAC and, and to very little effect. Um, I think the issue is that the money in politics used to be controlled largely by the parties. So the parties controlled which candidates got the money and which didn't. In other words, a party could say, so all five of you people or seven of you people or 10 of you people want to run for president. You know, we don't think that's a very good idea because we want a rather narrow field in order to marginalize the one of you that we think is not a very good idea. And in fact, even if the one of you that that we don't like decides to run, we're going to make sure you really don't have any money. Or somebody would get elected in Congress, notwithstanding their uh, Looney Tunes views. And the party would say, "Okay, I mean, I guess you can get elected in, in this district somewhere in America. But uh, we're going to make sure you don't get any money to run for Senate or for governor or to do much of anything. And so when you took the power away from parties to control the money, you ended up with candidates who may have all sorts of views, including, including views and anathema to the parties themselves, were able to collect money from everybody they wanted to. And you could make an argument that, you know, Freeing up all of this money and making it more small D democratic was a, a good idea for politics. But I think you can also <laughs> make make the case that there are, have been consequences uh, to that. 
And and by the way, this gets us back to our original discussion, discussion which is when are some of these people going to get out or why, why might they not get out? Well, because no matter what the party might say, no matter what Governor Chris Sununu in New Hampshire might say about the need to thin the field and I'm going to use my bully pulpit, which maybe he will, he keeps saying he will, as long as I can raise money online from small donors or my super PAC and cut, get a couple of big checks from supportive big donors that are playing in this race, I can hang around. And as a, these candidates have told me over the years when I've asked them this question, uh, it kind of gets back to the human element in all of this because these are people, which is, you know, you ask us, why don't we get out? Why are we doing this? And, you know, we've just invested a huge portion of our lives and our energy and our time and in our families' lives into this. And now you're telling us we just need to get out. You know, I didn't run because I thought I was going to lose. And I don't just want to get out, even if it's the right thing to do or would make you think better of me, because I'm a human being and I want to believe and I don't want to quit. In the goofy but still somehow delightful uh, Michael Douglas movie, The American President. Uh, Martin Sheen plays his advisor, uh, his his top guy, and they're shooting pool at the White House one night. And uh, Martin Sheen says, you know, you're down to uh, 40% or whatever he says. And before Michael Douglas can speak, he says, if you tell me a lot of guys would love to have 40%, I'm going to feed you this pool, this cue ball or whatever he says. And I thought that sort of encapsulated if you it, it takes a certain derangement to want to run for high office, particularly the presidency. And you can't do it unless, you know, Reagan's story about the little kid who came down on Christmas morning to find a giant pile of horse manure uh, next to the Christmas tree. You know that joke? I don't remember. And his parents come into the room and the kid is is shoveling away wildly with a giddy look on his face. And they say, what are you doing? And he says, with all of this horse crap here, there's got to be a pony in here someplace. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. the, the, you, you have, you need a certain amount of that to run for any high office because you're going to get a lot of bad news. You're going to hear a lot of bad things. But I think back to Scott Walker and how he pushed eject on his candidacy. Uh, when he was running, right? He was, he was, he was supposed to be the guy. He ran, was not the guy, and got out in pretty fast fashion. Rather than going all in on Iowa or talking about how he could shepherd his uh, depleted resources to go forward, he got out. And sometimes they get out, right? Because sometimes they, they, whether it's out of dignity or, and I'm open to the possibility of sense of duty to country and party uh, that they say, okay, this is, this is the wrong thing for me. Um, all right. Let's ask the Isgurian question. Does any of this really matter, Dave? Does any of this really matter? <sighs> well, and the, <laughs> I've, I've read a lot of this. I've seen a lot of this. Uh, in the coverage, uh, there was a Ben Terrace piece in the Washington Post, and there's a lot of arch coverage of the Republican nominating process that says, yeah, but who cares? Trump's at 50% or better, and none of this matters, LOLZ. 
why are these people even doing it? So why are the, it does, does this matter? And will they continue to have debates? And will this continue to go forward? Or is this now meaningless? Well, look, in a few months, we're going to look back at what happened over the ensuing few months. And somebody's going to say, ah, I told you so. But we don't know what's going to happen over the next few months. So the way I look at this is, it is ridiculous and insulting to tell everybody that what you're seeing is not what you're seeing. But there is still a group of candidates, among them substantial people, whatever you think of their positions and how they've conducted their campaigns, that are running for president. We're still a month, whatever, a couple of months from the first votes. And so I think, you know, as a political reporter, I think it does matter that we cover what happens. Um, I think it's important that we put it in the right context so that we're not telling people that there's something different happening than what is happening. But, you know, I think what we've learned over the past, or what we should have learned over the past decade or so, is that sometimes the unusual happens where the thing that we don't think is going to happen happens. So for any of us to conclude via our coverage that something doesn't matter before it actually happens, I think it's fine if you're an opinion journalist to write that story and tell us why that's what's about to happen. But I think that if you're a reporter, you report what's happening, you put it in proper context, and then we'll see. And I don't say we'll see as in, I don't believe the polling. Therefore, I'm going to pretend the polling isn't the polling. I just mean that, you know, I think our job is to provide, to provide, to provide people with information. Now, clearly, just one last thing on this. We make judgments all the time that things don't matter and don't need coverage, right? There are some people that if you go to the Federal Election Commission website are listed as running for president of the United States. I don't remember their names. I will never cover anything they say or do. But there is a small group of substantial people that have raised some amounts of substantial money that are campaigning and that support. are doing things. And so we'll continue to, to cover these things. But, you know, don't forget there was a large group. There were there were large groups of people in 2016 that kept thinking Trump was going to lose or implode. There were substantial groups of people in 2020 that presumed Biden was cooked until he won, as it turns out, in South Carolina. And so sometimes our job is to get past what we think is going to happen and just say, this is what is happening. Yes, this is how difficult it may be for this person to overcome this hurdle, whatever this hurdle is. But until we have a decision from the voters, this is just what is happening and the context of what is happening. So that's how I approach this. And that's my answer to that question. As I wrote the morning after the 2016 election, sometimes the Cubs win, right? The Cubs don't usually win the World Series. Sometimes the Cubs win. Uh, and, you know, that's obviously evil and bad. But, you know, sometimes, sometimes that happens. The way that I, I frame it is the way to think about the Republican nominating contest is that it is an incumbent election. 
that you have a Republican. You, you, the Donald Trump is the sitting Republican nominee, right? He is the person most recently, and by the way, twice nominated by the Republican Party. Uh, the office is not vacant. And as a result, he has been able to take the, let's say, 25 or 30% of diehard followers that he has. And coupled with the power of incumbency and the energy uh, of inevitability, the, pow- the power of inertia in politics, to, for the, I, I always am quoting Whit Ayers, but it's just so good I can't not, which is you've got three groups. You've got always Trump, never Trump, and always Republican. And do, the, the power of incumbency and the inertia, uh, the power of inertia, gives Trump the lion's share of the always Republicans, the folks who say, the same folks who you, if you ask them who should be the Republican Speaker of the House, they should say whoever they nominated, right? Whether that is Kevin McCarthy or whether that is Jim Jordan, you should shut up, you should vote with the majority, and you should, you should go along and go focus on the Democrats. So if we understand Donald Trump to be an incumbent, then we flip it around and we say, okay, if Joe Biden had half of the vote in Democratic national polls against Gavin Newsom, let's, you know, you switch it around. Gavin Newsom, uh, the, uh, the, some, former administ- some former Obama administration official, uh, if, if that was the case and half of the vote was distributed among other prominent Democrats, what would you say? You'd say Joe Biden has a hell of a problem on his hands. The Democrats are not united. They're really deeply divided. If um, when we when RFK Jr. at the beginning, before people heard him, and something like 20% of Democrats said, oh, I don't know, maybe I like RFK Jr. Maybe that's good. We correctly understood that to be a sign of weakness for um, Joe Biden. And if um, discount liquor, air, and uh, gelato magnet Dean Phillips of Minnesota, when he gets in the race, we'll see if he gets a number. If Dean Phillips gets 15%, if he's, if he's polling at 15%, we would say this is a serious problem for Biden. And I think the way, I think what all of this should, I 100% agree with you about how to think about the primary, which is let him run. You don't know what's going to happen. We don't know whether Donald Trump will be in a jail cell. We don't know. We don't know. There's enough, there's, there's enough variability here and enough precedent-breaking stuff going on. Weird things could happen. I give Trump a four out of five chance to be the Republican nominee, but that ain't five out of five, right? That's, that's still 20%. And, uh, so, so I agree with you completely, let him run. But I also think that we can take the traditional insights from who wins general elections, divided parties or united parties, united parties win general elections. Well, you're correct. Um, you know, look, one, one, as an aside, one advantage Biden has is as the incumbent president for real, he has control of the Democratic National Committee, right? So therefore, no, 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 DNC, no DNC resources are going to be expended on any primary challenger 
the DNC is not going to hold any debates because the parties are truly the property of incumbent office holders, right? So that's one, you know, one issue here, one small disadvantage for Trump. And it's why he keeps saying the RNC should cancel the debates and unite behind me because by its own rules, it cannot. Um, It's a very, I think, Chris, I, I feel like it's, look, it's very possible things could just fall into to line. You have Trump versus Biden, the parties fall into line, and everything is as it usually is. But you're very correct to point out that next year could be all sorts of uncharted territory, right? I mean, you've, you've got a, a, a weak, politically weak, at least right now, incumbent president um, with challenges to his left in some form or another, right? I mean, Cornell West could get only six votes in his independent third party bid for president. But if those six votes are in the right state, a la Florida 2000, then he could have a particular problem, right? RFK Jr. may pull more votes from Trump than from Biden, but he may in certain places pull more votes from Biden than from Trump. So he could hurt either or both of these candidates. And then you've just got so much dissatisfaction, uh, a somewhat divided Republican Party, but a, at least for now, apparently rather divided Democratic Party, that it's hard to know for sure how it's going to shake out. And, and I would say that the division is more problematic for Biden only because he's the incumbent, right? And the even though the out party may be led by another virtual incumbent who everybody knows, sometimes when you have dissatisfied voters, it's easier to win over their votes because you're simply not the other guy who's currently in office, right? Biden benefited from that in 2020. Granted, we didn't have the same divisions. Um, but Trump has an opportunity, if he's the nominee, to benefit from that in 2024. And we've seen polling where if it's anybody other than Trump, Biden could be in real serious trouble. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think I think the obvious pain for Republicans is this is the most vulnerable incumbent maybe of our lifetimes at this point. Uh, Jimmy Carter at this point in 1979 had a lot more reason to feel good than Joe Biden does right now. Now, we could also say Joe Biden's polling numbers are about the same as Donald Trump's and Barack Obama's were at this point in their presidencies. It's about the same, right? Low 40s, kicking around down there and with with strong dissatisfaction present. So you could say that. But given Biden's age uh, and given the way that inflation you know, inflation is almost as if it was designed to punish incumbents because it hits middle class voters. It hits those voters that get to decide every election. Um, the uh, likely voter who is lightly attached to either political party, if when gas is four dollars a gallon and the cost of food is 30 percent higher than it was before or more. Those are the voters who are feeling it most of all. Uh, I've heard a lot of analysis about Biden on issues and Biden's age and Biden, these other things, and why he's not doing better with black voters and why he's not doing better with Hispanic voters and why he's not doing with the da-da-da-da-da. It's like, it seems pretty simple to me. 
incumbent presidents don't do great when gas is $4 a gallon. It's just because uh, the working class and middle class voters are feeling the worst of it, right? We're, we feel some of, we see some of the pain in the college-educated suburban upper-class voters with in, what's going on with mortgage rates and what's going on with interest rates. That's definitely getting them. But now for all of Joe Biden's presidency so far, working class, the, the voters in basically, I always think of the Ohio and Mississippi valleys and the, and the cities and towns in, those, in that part of the country who were the big swings from 2012 to 2016 and big swings from 2016 to 2020. For those voters, this inflation is just, it's, it's, it's brutal and it probably supersedes everything else. Hello, it is Ryan and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, I want to get your estimate on a lot of these general election matchup polls for next year that do a hypothetical Biden-Trump are notable to me for one particular reason. Huge undecided, right? Massive numbers of undecided voters. Uh, I think there was a Siena poll out for New York Times that had Biden only winning in New York by six points or something or eight points or something uh, with more than a dozen undecided, uh, more than a dozen points undecided. How do you think about those voters? When you think about these big numbers, 10, 12% undecided in these polls, what are they, what are they really? I think they're just dissatisfied voters. I think they're voters that don't yet have to make a decision because the election's not today and this is sort of their none of the above vote. But then when push comes to shove, if they're the kind of voters that show up in presidential elections, they're probably going to revert to type. And that means if you generally vote for Democrats, you're going to vote for Biden, particularly if Donald Trump is the nominee. If you generally vote for Republicans, you're probably going to vote for the Republican nominee, whether it's Trump or anybody else. And if you're a swing voter or a true independent, um, then you're going to make a last minute decision. And it just sort of depends on where you fit within the swing voter universe, because there are swing voters that I like to think of as voters that are make their decision based on the conversation we just had about the economy. Listen, I've got to eat. I want my family to do well. And if I'm really unhappy with the leadership I'm getting from the White House on these 
on quality of life issues, particularly economic issues, then I'm going to give somebody new a shot. And in this case, even if somebody new is somebody old, but who, you know, pre-pandemic presided over a very good economy. Um, but you also could be the kind of swing voter that is so exhausted by Donald Trump and his antics that, and you, you find him so reprehensible that you're the person that would tell, you know, a focus group, you know, I, if it was Haley or DeSantis or Scott or Christie, they would definitely get my vote, but I just can't deal with Donald Trump anymore. And so then the, the issue is kind of like mathematically figuring out who's who, where are they, and how many of each are they. I perceive that it will be very hard for Joe Biden to do as well as he did in 2020. But I also perceive that it will be very hard for Donald Trump to do as well as he did in 2016. Um, both, both are known entities and both have alienated big chunks of voters, right? Uh, there, are, there are a lot of the, the weakness for Biden with working class voters is profound compared to 2020. But Trump's weakness with um, college educated uh, and suburban voters is, and I think if there's one lesson from 2022, when we look at Pennsylvania, when we look at Georgia, when we look at Arizona, that it's still, it's still got the stink on it, right? Uh, it still has the stink on it. And my guess is, so right now, Biden's running a lot of pro-Biden ads, which is a very weird and unhappy place for an incumbent president to be, which is in the in the fall of the year before running, hey, he's not that bad kind of ads. Uh, that's that's not that's not super. Uh, it doesn't say super things. But I also know what hasn't happened yet, which is the sluice way of negative Trump ads and the saturation bombing of just every January 6th video, every awful thing that Donald Trump has ever said. And the Democrats are going to smash that into the electorate's face like a grapefruit. It's going to be a just a constant barrage of trying to disqualify Donald Trump. I assume part of the reason that they're not doing that now is they want Donald Trump to be the nominee. They don't want to undercut him now. Yeah. I've had conversations with with voters about this, Republican voters. And I'll explain to them that, well, I believe that Trump absolutely could defeat Biden in, in 2024, which is true. I believe he could. Um, Democrats believe that Trump is, of all the Republicans running, the one Joe Biden is most likely to be able to beat. And then they tell me that's just simply not true. The reason they're prosecuting him, whether it's the, you know, they lump the federal indictments and the local indictments all together is because they're afraid of him and they're trying to get rid of him. And I said, listen, Trump's numbers in the Republican primary have only gone up since all of these indictments. But trust me, that's not why they're prosecuting him. Trump is the one guy that they feel Biden has an opportunity to beat and they just 
do not believe me. But if you talk to Democrats, what they will say is, yes, Biden could lose to Trump, and that worries us. But he's among our choices from a pure political perspective, the easiest one for Biden to knock off. And I, I think they're happy not to interfere in the Republican primary because it's not, it doesn't look like it's about to elevate somebody that they might really be afraid of. And then, well, and look, the I, if they could pick, if they could pick, they would, if they could pick, they'd want Vivek Ramaswamy, but they know they can't have Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, but they would much rather have, and I think this is uh, correct. I think Joe Biden is the wrong choice for Democrats. Uh, and it is sad, and I think potentially a legacy crippling um, decision by Joe Biden not to have stepped aside after the midterms. And I think that we'd be living in a very different political reality if Joe Biden, after the midterms, had said, you know what, we did a lot better than we thought, and I think it's working, but I'm going to focus these last two years on accomplishing the goals that are important to me and to the American people, and I'm going to let my party work out uh, what it needs to work out. That would have been a totally, di- would be a totally different story. Probably still be Kamala Harris, and she'd probably lose anyway, but uh, the, it would be a totally different story. But if, if, if you're dealing with Biden and you can't have Ramaswamy, you'd sure rather have Trump than you would DeSantis or Haley or Scott, right? That's that's surely a better choice uh, than those three if you're a Democrat. Well, sure, because just just the age issue and the generational issue, and we've talked about this, but Joe Biden's number one vulnerability, and I think this is make this is a bigger issue than inflation, than what's going on around the world, is just his age, and it's not he cannot do anything about that, and it only gets worse. It's almost it's almost like saying inflation's your biggest problem. What do we do about it? Well, sir, it's it's baked into the cake. It's going from 10% to 14% by next year. And there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. Well, of course, we know that's not true. It's, it's the economy. There are always things that can be done. Things may change. They may get better. They may get worse. When you're 80 years old, you're only, your best option is to turn 81. And once you're 81, <laughs> your best option, your best option is to turn 82. And so he's, and by the way, I've, I've talked to lots of Democrats that are absolutely going to vote for him and are absolutely happy with his presidency, who still are unhappy that their their choice is an 80 year old guy. Right. They're, they're going to get these votes like these people are hardcore and they have no complaints. But they're like, why are we stuck with an 80 year old guy? Why is it that in a country of 350 million people over 330 million, we can't have better choices. And by the way, that conversation post midterm elections last year among Democrats might have happened if there had been a Republican wave. I've talked to Democrats about this. Once Democrats overperformed, and not just overperformed, but really did remarkably well for an economy where it was and president, the president's approval ratings where they were. Once that happened, it shut down any internal discussions, Democrats tell me, that might have happened that might have gotten them to a place where they had an open primary, maybe the vice president's the favorite, the favorite, but she hadn't earned it in a way that would have kept everybody out. And they might have had a chance for a better contrast. And so you nominate anybody other than a 78-year-old guy with Trump's baggage, and all of a sudden it's fresh, young, and invigorating. 
And then you're having an ideological clash. Um, maybe Biden still wins that, but it becomes much tougher. So what does, and I don't know what will have happened by the time this airs, but what does the House Speaker election tell us about the condition of the Republican Party in these United States 2023? And it's factionalized that it deprioritizes governing and is constantly governed by this idea that we live in a time of catastrophe where incremental progress or progress of any kind other than the ultimate progress is useless and uninvited, right? These guys can't even unite among themselves to try and produce incremental conservative progress at a time of divided government. It also tells me, Chris, that, and some people will laugh at this, you know, my biggest concern as a campaign reporter who lives in Washington is that I will, you know, I will be wrapped in a Washington bubble and I won't know what people are really thinking. Voters, what's motivating them, what they're feeling. Right. So I traveled and mitigate that. And I like my job and I like to travel, so it's fun. But I think a lot of Republicans live in a bubble of their own where the whole world is their gerrymandered Republican district. By the way, we could talk about Democrats in the same way in, in, in a different conversation. But so you have a factionalized party. Each faction, or at least some factions, believe that everybody believes what they believe, that end times are near. And so instead of just making sure you get things done um, and then come back for more and come back for more and keep the wheels turning, um, you're better off shutting everything down because there is no other option and there is no reason to believe that uh, tomorrow could be better. So it's, it's, it's just a party governed by factionalism and doomsdayism. And that's where they're stuck right now. The eschatological nature of the Republican Party is wild. Um, and you see it. We talked about the Senate elections. The Pennsylvania Republican Senate primary uh, was a really good example of if you have convinced a substantial number of Republicans or if a substantial Republicans, number of Republicans are convinced, not just that the stakes are high. So I wrote a piece, uh, was called Politics Beyond Consequences. And so if you believe the stakes are high, you are inclined to be pragmatic, right? If the stakes are high and you say, well, and this is how the Cold War, for example, uh, shaped American politics. Well, we can't afford to be divided in all of this stuff because the Russians are out there and we've got it. We've got to get our act together. We can't look like this. We can't. Act. Nixon's not going to contest the 1960 election. Uh, Nixon's going to resign. We could see it just through the story of one person of how an external threat and the awareness of that threat in the electorate created an impulse away from the kind of doomsdayism that you're talking about. So if the stakes are high, then you will unite or you will act accordingly. But then something happens when you go beyond the stakes are high. If all is already lost, right? 
if if we're doomed as it is, then I will be Pat Buchanan and Teddy Roosevelt use the same kind of language in their populist campaigns of 1912 and of 1992, which was we're at the Battle of Armageddon, right? We are we are at the end. We stand literally at the end of time. And will you be one of the ones who fought, who, who, whose name goes in the role of honor for those who fought to the very end before we were destroyed? And the, um, some of this has to do with demography, right? Some of this has to do with older voters who are, look at the world that they're leaving behind and feel that, that cataclysm approacheth. Uh, some of it is a media story about, uh, selling doom and selling disaster, but whatever the case that is present, you are a hundred percent right. That is very much present in the Republican party. And that takes you beyond consequences because the consequences, uh, are already guaranteed. We're guaranteed the, the day of judgment is coming and which side are you on? I also notice that neither of these parties is afraid of the other party um, in, a, in a practical sense. Uh, and this is a Yuval Levin point and very much true, which is we've had a lot of close elections. Um, 2008 looks like a blowout compared to what we've seen since 2008. But compared to the historical norms going back before that, blowout elections were common, Right. Um, because we have such an evenly divided nation and since people are so well sorted politically and because negative partisanship is so powerful, uh, tell me whether you think this is true. If you could give sodium pentothal to every Republican senator and say, okay, here's what's going to happen. Donald Trump's going to win the nomination. He's going to lose the general fairly narrowly. But the Republicans are going to take the Senate and the House will stay pretty close to evenly divided. They'd all take it, right? Almost all of them would take it. They'd say, great, <laughs> that's, that's, a pr- that's a pretty good deal. And when you have so many elections played between the 40-yard lines where nobody's getting smoked, we think back to after the 2008 election, Republicans were genuinely afraid, right? They were genuinely afraid of Democrats. Barack Obama has been elected in comparatively a landslide. He's won states. Democrats haven't won in two generations. He's really popular, and he's going to just stomp our guts out. He's just going it's, to, it's going to be a disaster. And we haven't seen that in either party because neither party can function like a majority party. Neither, fun, ni- neither party wants, it looks like they could build a durable and sustainable majority. We can go back to Karl Rove talking about a McKinley-style majority for the Republicans. People don't think in those terms now. They think in terms of, we're probably going to lose next time, but it's probably going to be close. And as a consequence, they don't. So there's the the um, spiritual, um, social, psychological idea about these end times eschatological Republicans. But that's reinforced by close election after close election after close election, in which they say, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? We go from being five up to five down, whatever. Like, let's just do what we want because the consequences aren't there. Yeah. You know, what I find so ironic is that every time one of the parties wins, 
wins a majority of a majority in the House and Senate or both or wins the White House, their immediate reaction is we better do everything we ever set out to do in our entire lives because we are never going to win again, except you just won. And even though you lost four years ago, you won two years before that and four years before that. So number one, they win. They declare victory improbable and likely never to happen again. So they swing for the fences, overreach, and voters say, this is not what I wanted. Or because we're in divided politics, it energizes the opposition so much that it's able to take advantage of midterm election trends or or what have you. The other thing they're governed by with this end of daysism or doomsdayism, which I know isn't a real word, but I made it up, is that we have an election in this country every two years. And that's not even counting all the off-year elections and local elections and state elections. If the survival of the United States of America depends on one man or woman getting one more four-year term or getting a four-year term, preach. it's already done. I mean, you might as well pack it in and go home. And I've been living through this now as a as a reporter for 20 years, where, of course, not only are the candidates for office, and this is particularly true on the Republican side, uh, telling me that the country's no good and the government is no good. But what you've been keep telling me is this is the most important election in our lifetime. And if we lose, all is lost. And by the way, several times that side has lost. And then they wake up the next day and they're like, well, time to get back on the saddle again. We got another election coming in two years. And then they start telling me the same thing. This is the most important election in our lifetime. And if we don't win, all is lost. And then they win. And then the next day, to get back to my point, they say, we are never going to win again. We better do everything. And I am waiting for purely self-interested purposes on the part of whoever does this to look at the outcome of a close election and say, you know what the voters gave me? Nominal power. They gave me a small majority. They're not on board with everything. What if I just, while not compromising my principles and while choosing to have, you know, a couple of very important fights, what if I govern according to the majority I was given by the voters rather than the majority that I imagine in my pea brain? And eventually, just just for giggles or just because they're trying something new, somebody will try that again. And it may pay enormous dividends and stop the boomerang we have had for almost two decades of power swinging back and forth and voters constantly slapping down majorities they just elected. And today's installment of Why Our Primary Election System is Hot Garbage was brought to you by the letter M for David Drucker's middle name. Uh, Brother Drucker, uh, this is why you are uh, the indispensable man when it comes to campaign coverage. Uh, And just in one more uh, dose of praise, we lived in a time where polling data uh, was believed that we could could be substituted for real political coverage. We found out that's not true. 
You have to be on the ground. You have to talk to people. You have to talk to voters. You have to get a sense of what's going on. And then news consumers have to find trusted voices who actually know what they're talking about and have a track record to point to. And you, sir, are that person. Thank you very much, Chris. I appreciate it. Well, we love having you here. All right. Thank you, David Drucker. Thanks, Chris. Enjoyed coming back on The Remnant. And that, gentle listeners, was some punditry ranker than April ramps in a West Virginia stew pot. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope that it will tide you over until the return of our dear leader, Jonah. Uh, And until then, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is my podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.